You're listening to a sermon preached at Redeeming Life Church. If you have your Bible, and I hope that you do, we're going to be in 2 Thessalonians today. We're continuing in our series. We're going to be looking today at uh, chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Go ahead and uh, make your way there if you have your app. Um, open up to that if you're following along on version. Uh, All those scriptures are laid out for you in our event. I would like to start by reading God's Word, taking a look at this passage, and letting it be the foundation of what we'll be discussing this morning. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 13. But we ought to thank God always for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning God has chosen you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel, so that you might obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold on to the traditions you were taught, whether by what we said or by what we wrote. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal encouragement and good hope by grace, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good work and word. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, as we come before this text, I ask that you would show us who you are, that by this word we would learn something of you and something of ourselves, that we would hear the gospel, that those who don't know you would be saved, that those who are struggling would be encouraged, Lord, and that we'd be equipped for every good work that you have put before us. Lord, we seek to honor and glorify you. And to do that, Lord, we hope that you would show us something, show us where to walk, show us how to walk, show us a great many things from this text, Lord, and let it move us. And Lord, may we be changed by it. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been... um, We've been working in 2 Thessalonians and 1 Thessalonians in this series, and some of that has had to do with end times things. And you might be surprised to learn that what we have in the text here today and the doctrine that comes out from this is more controversial, I guess is the word I might use, in the church or more discussed and debated in the church than even the end time stuff. More has been written about it, more has been discussed about it, and for good reason. It's substantially more significant than the end times discussion because this shows us something about the nature of God and something about the nature of man, and it shows us a great deal about salvation. And right now, if you don't know what doctrine I'm talking about, don't worry By the time we get to the end of this sermon, you probably will. So, buckle up. Let's go ahead and see if we can make our way through what we've just heard. And by way of reminder, I told you last week we sort of had a two-part series going on, so by way of reminder, chapter 2 and the topic of chapter 2 is concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to Him. That's verse 1. And then Paul's stated purpose is that the brothers and sisters are not to be easily upset or troubled. That's verse 2. Topic is the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and being gathered. 
The reason why Paul is making this argument is so that we would not be easily troubled or upset. Troubled or upset by what? What would be troubling? What would be so upsetting? Well, if you remember, at the beginning of the chapter, Paul said that there were false claims, either supposedly from Paul or a letter he wrote or somebody preaching some gospel that's not true. There were false claims that Jesus had already returned. And now they don't get to be with Jesus. And now that's it. You just missed your chance. And so they were, they were struggling, but they wouldn't get to be with Christ. And so in dealing with those troubles... The first part of this chapter, Paul talks about the return of Jesus, and he talks about a coming judgment and and the end times, and it's scary for those of us who aren't in Christ, and if you're not in Christ, that should be a real concern. However, the second part of the chapter offers great comfort in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and so last week I spent a lot of time in the first part and a little bit of time in the second part saying, hey, come back, we're having a two-part series. This week, I get to spend a little bit of time in the first part and a lot of time in the second part, which makes me much happier because the second part's so much more encouraging. But if you were here last week, I want to ask, beg, don't check out what I'm dealing with the first part because it's not a review. I'm actually going to be looking at it from a slightly different angle than I did last week to help us see this second part. So let's go ahead and and take a look here. If you remember in the first part in chapter 2, you remember that Paul mentioned some people who were perishing. So let's pick that up in verse 9. If you would look back up a little bit into verse 9. Let's refresh our mind here on this. It says, The coming of the lawless one is based on Satan's working with all kinds of false miracles, signs, and wonders. And with every wicked deception among those who are perishing. They perish because they did not accept the love of the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a strong delusion so they will believe the lie, so that all will be condemned. Those who did not believe the truth but delighted in unrighteousness. So, why are they perishing? It says they were perishing because they did not accept the love of the truth and so be saved. That's the second part of verse 10. And right there, when we read that, we should see that God has put the responsibility on us to accept the Lord. The responsibility of that decision is placed squarely on the individual. That'll be important here in a minute. Verse 12 says the same thing. It says, so all will be condemned. Who will be condemned? Those who did not believe the truth, but delighted in unrighteousness. So the way to be saved, it says, is to believe the good news of Jesus Christ. Who he is, what he did, why he went to the cross for you, why he raised from the grave so that you would also be among those in the resurrection. That's what it says. To believe and be saved is to believe the gospel. But Satan doesn't want you to believe. No big shocker there, right? Verse 9 shows us that false prophets, along with their false miracles and false signs and false wonders, are empowered by Satan and therefore fighting against you so that you will not believe the gospel. 
So far, you guys are tracking with me, right? This is pretty easy to understand. There's a cosmic battle for our souls, and if we believe, we're saved, and if we don't, we are not saved. Believe in Christ brings about that salvation. Simple enough, right? Okay. If this is so simple, what do we do with verse 11? It says, for this reason. Okay, let's back up for just a second. What's the reason? Verse 10, the second part of verse 10 says, they perished because they did not accept the love of the truth and so be saved. That's the reason. Okay, For this reason, God sends them a strong delusion so they will believe the lie. That's hard, right? That doesn't quite fit so cleanly in our cosmic battle scenario, does it? This is where a lot of people will cry, wait, that's unfair. That's unfair of God. That's not right. And when they do that, it forces them to do one of two things. It forces them to either say, God is not just. Or they wiggle around these kinds of verses because they want to get back to the idea of the cosmic battle that pits God against Satan and places man in the jury seat to make a decision about Jesus. Neither of these options work. The Bible does not affirm either one of these. First, God is perfectly just. Second, man is not on the jury. Man is on trial. So how does that work? Now it gets a little more complicated, doesn't it? How does that work? How is man held responsible to believe, but we have God sending a strong delusion to those who are perishing? How does this fit together? A call to accept the gospel and a working of God. How do we reconcile these things? The answer is what compels me to thank God. The answer is why Christianity is so serious about grace. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. How is it that God can be perfectly just and perfectly loving at the same time? How does this work? Well, this is where verses 13 through 15 come in. So now let's transition to the second part of this and take a look at what Paul says here about the gospel. I just want to read 13 through 15 one more time. But we ought to thank God always for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning, God has chosen you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel so that you might obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold to the traditions you were taught, whether by what we said or what we wrote. We should be thankful. Why? Because God chose you for salvation. That's verse 13. Some of you might know where this is headed. Some of you might not. This is driving us into Reformed theology. I mentioned it. I hinted at it last week. That's what it's pressing us into. This idea of how God saves that we see in the Bible. This idea brings about a lot of questions. 
So I don't have time to answer all of them today, but I'm going to see if I can answer some of them, at least some of the biggies. Uh, I'll start with this one. When did God choose me? When did that happen? Well, verse 13 says, from the beginning. And some of might say, well, hold on, my translation doesn't say that. Or wait a second, I have a footnote here that says some manuscripts that we found in our 5,000 plus New Testament manuscripts say, instead of saying from the beginning God chose me, it says, because as a first fruit God chose me. I'm okay with that. If that's what the manuscript says, I'm, that's fine. That could go both ways. Because I have great comfort in seeing more detail on this matter and more information in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. That sheds more light on the when and the why. So turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 6. If you're using the Pew Bible, that's on 1036. If you're following along in the, the version event, it's probably just right there in front of you. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. This is going to give us some, some how, some when. Actually, not so much the how. It's going to give us the when and maybe the why. Also by Paul. Paul writes, inspired by God. Blessed is God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. Before God created the world, he had you in mind. He knew you. He thought about you. He knew everything you would do. He knew how he would work in your life and he knew how he would save you. And he had already then decided to save you through his son, Jesus Christ. Psalm 90, verses 1 and 2, show us that even then he was our salvation. That verse says, Lord, you have been our refuge or salvation in every generation. Before the mountains were born, before you gave birth to the earth, And the world, from eternity to eternity, you are God. Think about that the next time you look at the Wasatch. Before God made that mountain range, he had you in mind. He knew he would save you. That's awesome, right? Here's another question. In regard to the when, people have asked, is it possible that God looked down the corridors of time, he looked into the future to see if you would believe and choose him, and then if you would, then he would choose you. That's what people ask often. Is it possible that that he looked to see what you would do, and then based on what you would do, he chose you? Some people ask that. I think scripture says no. Here's why. If that were the case, that would create a moment when God didn't know something. That would mean that God, this all-knowing, omniscient, God, at least for a moment, didn't know if that question were indeed possible. God would have to look to you to gain some information that he didn't have that he wanted. Therefore, you were providing him with something rather than him providing you with something. I just don't see how scripture makes that possible. 
1 John 3.20 says God knows everything. Everything includes everything you've ever done, will do, have done, ever thought. God knows everything. Psalm 139.4 says, Before a word is on my lips and my tongue, you know all about it, Lord. Okay, okay. Maybe that scripture is about what's happening in the present, but maybe it's not about that moment when he was looking into the future. That is what some people claim, that that's, that's about now, but not before he created the earth. But still in the past, the first time he looked down the corridor into the future, he would have had no idea. He didn't know if that's the case. He was leaning forward in his seat, in anticipation going, I wonder if this, one of my creation, will choose me. I wonder what he's going to do here. He didn't know. And you did. So you see how that can't be possible? If you've read your Bible, you just know God does not function like that. Here's another question. And this is probably one of the biggies. How is man held responsible for this decision of salvation if a person can't get saved without God starting the saving work? How can God hold man responsible if it's up to God to do the work in you that brings salvation? How is this fair? First, this question assumes no history or backstory. Second, this question neglects to consider our sin nature. Third, this question misses the grace of God. And fourth, and I promise you, we really don't want what's fair. So, to illustrate this, what I want to do is I want to monetize sin. And some of you are going, that's absurd. I feel like I have some biblical precedent to do such a thing because you remember when Jesus was asked, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times? Do you remember the parable he shared? He shared a story where he said a king wanted to settle up his debts. And so he goes to a man who owed him a great deal of money. How many people remember how much money? 200,000, excuse me, 10,000 tenants, talents, sorry, talents. A talent is about 20 years wages. So that man owed about 200,000 years of wages. Okay, in today's average dollars, that's about $11.5 trillion of student loan debt this guy has amassed. <laughs> right? So I think Jesus is, to make his point, monetizing a problem. I think I can do the same. So here's the situation we have. We start with debt, and we have a spending habit, a real bad one. Okay, that's sin and sin nature. Genesis 5.3 says that we are made in Adam's image. Adam was made in God's image, but then there was sin. Adam ended up with a sin nature, and every single person after that inherited or was born with Adam's sin nature. So while we are made in the image of God, we are tainted with the image of sin as well. Okay, And that sin image really means we started with an $11.5 trillion debt, and we are grossly addicted to spending money. I mean, we love it. It solves all of our problems. So we spend, 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 spend. Okay, and there is no hope unless there is an intervention. And if we're monetizing this, what's the intervention? Someone comes and cuts up all the credit cards. 
So you no longer can spend, right? Unless there's an intervention, we have no hope. And here's the problem. Unless there's an intervention, we don't want to hear anything anybody has to say about budgeting and spending and and making good choices. So we reject all that unless someone were to intervene. But in this illustration, the debt is still ours, is it not? We still have to account for it. Just because my parents didn't teach me to budget money well and didn't teach me not to use credit cards and didn't teach me not to rack up loans doesn't mean that I'm off the hook from having to pay. That's why we're held responsible for believing or not believing. We don't just get off the hook for not knowing any better. And if you don't like that, you need to take it up with your father, Adam, in whom you've been made in his image. Praise the Lord for adoption, right? Praise the Lord for adoption. Fair. Let's talk about that for a second. Fair is that we pay for every sin and our sin debt and our sin nature. Okay, and And I just monetize sin, and that makes it sound nice, but let's get to some reality. Every single sin, every white lie, every wicked thought, every lustful thing you've acted out on, every single sin is punishable by death. It's a death penalty every single time. That's Romans 6.23, every time. Your sin alone is thousands and thousands, if not millions and millions of concurrent death sentences. Justice and fairness demand that somebody pays for that. And humanity gets this concept. This is not a foreign concept to us. You know how I know? Because when people feel like justice has been denied and someone hasn't been required to pay, they get so angry they burn down their own city and riot in the streets. We understand justice, that someone must pay. Grace. Grace is God putting all of your concurrent death sentences including all you will ever accrue in the future, on his one and only son, Jesus Christ. That's grace. That's the gospel. That's the good news that we sing about and that we celebrate, that he would do something so atrocious as to to free us from that consequence. If you had an $11.5 trillion student loan, and someone paid that for you and then told you to go to college on his dime for the rest of your life as long as you want, would you be pretty thrilled about that? And how much more significant is this than college classes? We didn't deserve it, but God gave it to those he chose. Praise the Lord. Now, This is where it gets a little tricky. Some people say, well, wait, what about the whosoevers or the everyone's in the Bible when we see things about salvation? I could go to lots of verses. I'm going to go to John 3.16. Most of you know it, John 3.16. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone, you might have a translation that says, so that whosoever, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Now, some people will argue. Some people will say that the everyone here in this verse 
is either, they'll say, a sense of universalism that everybody's saved, which is not the case, or that everybody has this free will option to come because the call is open to everyone. But what they miss is, so that everyone who believes is a qualifier. Everyone who does this thing. It's a qualifier or condition in the statement. It means that not everybody will get saved, but only those who believe. It also means not everyone will believe, but those who God changes in their heart will be saved. They're not going to be turned away. John 6.44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him on the last day. That's what Jesus said. Nobody can come to me unless the Father draws him. Think about this for a moment. That is a totally pointless statement if everyone has been drawn to God. There would be no single person that's a no one out there and no need for such a qualifying statement. Instead, Jesus would have said something like, you wouldn't have been able to come to my Father had he not drawn you. That's how he would have said it. He didn't say it that way. No one can do this unless God draws him. So not everyone will believe, but everyone who does, because God drawed him, will not be turned away. It is an open invitation to everyone who will come, but because of that sin nature and the spending habit without an intervention, we don't want to come. You can't be too bad or too messed up or too sinful. If you will turn to Jesus and believe, the invitation is yours. You will be saved. I have one more question here to deal with. If God chooses, why bother doing evangelism? And this is the biggest critique against Reformed theology. And it's a silly, silly argument. Here's why we should do evangelism if it's God who does the work. First, because we're told to do evangelism by God. He commands us to share the gospel, Matthew 28, John 20, Acts 1, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, among many other places. And if we, if we, we should love to obey God if we love God. If we love him, we're going to do this. And so we should go, hey, okay, I could do that. No problem. Here's a second reason why we should do evangelism. God's chosen means or his methods, mechanics at which he set this into motion, is through the proclaiming of his gospel. Hey, Romans 1.16 says, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to those of us who are being saved. What's the power of God? The gospel, the proclaimed message. And how about this? Verse 2, 14, in our reading here, in the text we're dealing with, in what Paul says, he says, he called you to this, what? Salvation for the glory of God through our gospel so that you might obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Even in what we're reading, it is by and through the gospel of Jesus Christ that God works his power. So why do we do evangelism? Because people need to hear the gospel. 
They'll choose if God's drawn them. They'll say yes. And maybe not today, but maybe down the road. That's not our responsibility. That's God's responsibility. But our responsibility is share the gospel. So that's why we do evangelism, even if it's God who does the work. This is his chosen means, and by you sharing the gospel, you become part of his chosen means. It's go to work with Jesus day. Okay, enough questions about God choosing. Uh, I did write a post on Realm called What is Reformed Theology? Uh, If you'd like to jump into a bigger self-study, there's lots of stuff there. If you'd like to talk with me, I'm totally fine with that. Dig in. But for now, let us not forget the context in which Paul chose to tell us that God chooses. Because here, context is king. Why would Paul tell us all this? To start an argument among seminary students? Of course not. Or maybe. But I don't think so. Paul told us for a very specific reason. The discussion was started by way of Paul encouraging the church not to worry about the end times and not to worry about missing Jesus and not to worry about these final judgments and not to worry about Satan messing around with people and false signs and false wonders. This was a way to encourage the people. How? Well, Paul's saying we do not need to worry about these things because we are chosen and saved by Jesus Christ. Your proof, if you're wondering, your proof is if the gospel is not foolishness to you. That's 1 Corinthians 1.18. If you don't think the gospel is foolish, well, that's where the power is found for those of us who are being saved. Remember? Anytime you doubt your salvation, go back to there and say, do I think the gospel is foolish? Because if you don't, that verse says you're saved. And you might have some things to learn, and you might need to trust the Lord in some areas, but stop worrying. Paul's point here in worrying about all those things is you have no need to worry. God's got you. So then, Paul writes in verse 15, he says, Brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold on to the traditions or the, the gospel that you were taught. Then he says, by word, most of us have not heard Paul say that out loud or by what we wrote. Oh, we all have what Paul wrote. So we can all hold on and stand firm. God has the entire thing worked out. He's sovereign. He's seen, he he knows, he's orchestrated. So you can trust him. And you can stand firm on the rock of your salvation, Jesus Christ, without worry. Some of you are Christian profess faith in Jesus Christ, and yet you're still worried to stand before God. You're worried about that moment that that Joe had last Wednesday. It causes you fret, and it causes you concern. You're concerned you're not going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. But instead, when standing at that initial judgment, when you see God for the first time, and he says, either that or I never knew you depart from me, you're you're afraid. Why? Why? God did the work for you. You don't have to be afraid. Many of you are are working at this and toiling at this out of fear. You don't have to. God did the work. He chose you. And because this shows off his grace and it shows the world his glory and makes him well known, his reputation is on the line. And he's not going to fail you. You don't need to worry. 
God chose you. So hold on to the truth and stand firm on the rock of your salvation. Or maybe, maybe you're not worried about that judgment. Oh, I'll be okay when I finally get in front of Jesus. But instead, you're worried about doing enough in the here and now to please God. You're worried about what's happening right now. And your fear is that God is somehow angry with you. And he's not pleased with you. And he's disappointed. And he's upset. You fret and you, you worry now, I need to say, yes, if you are in sin, you should grieve your sin, and that should be concerning, but that should cause you to run even quicker to the cross, to find forgiveness with a God who's standing at the ready to forgive you, and to make his face shine upon you because you have repented and turned back to him, to his glory, to the praise of his holy name. Listen to me if this is you. If you think that The Lord is angry with you. If you have this issue of a father who's disappointed, listen to me. God did not choose you and adopt you then to withhold the continual grace and saving work of the cross from you for the rest of your life. It's available to you. It's yours. So hold on to the truth and stand firm on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or maybe... Maybe right now you're worried because you compare yourself to other Christians and you don't feel like you add up enough. You're not good enough compared to them. Or maybe you compare yourself not just to other Christians, but you compare yourself to the whole world and you feel as if you don't measure up. And if you're not good enough to them, are you going to be good enough to God? Do you even have any value? This comparison game is a dangerous game, and social media makes it just a click away. And we're addicted to it, and it weighs us down, and it works on us. But it doesn't matter. Not at all. You know why? Because God chose you. He put your death penalty on his son for you that might not make you pretty awesome in the world's eyes you might not feel great among your other christians but you don't need to worry about it because that makes you able to stand before a holy god and hear well done good and faithful servant well done god chose you And he's working in you. And you are his workmanship. So don't worry about what it looks like when you compare to everyone else. Hold on to his truth and stand firm. Or maybe you're simply worried you're not chosen. What if God didn't choose me before the foundation of the world? What if I'm not among his chosen ones? I get people asking me this question from time to time. This does come up. And it's such a silly question, and I don't mean to downplay it. If you're worried about it, if you're concerned, if this is you, let me tell you why it's such a silly question. Because when the Bible speaks about people who are perishing, the gospel is foolishness. They're not worried if they were chosen by God. Instead, they're saying, there is no God. I could do without God. I don't care. I'm not doing it his way. 
if you have any ounce of worry in you that you might not be chosen, I have a news flash for you. God's probably drawing you because he chose you. Amen. And he's wanting to talk to you about it. Nobody who's perishing is worried. I've heard it said nobody goes to hell kicking and screaming. They go there marching in a parade. <laughs> if you're worried, let's talk. Let's chat. Let's open the Bible. Let you be encouraged that God is drawing you by his gospel for salvation in Jesus Christ. It's there. You're being called to believe, do you? And if you do, you can hold on to the truth of the gospel and you can stand firm. So let's chat soon. Right after the service, if you're in here worried. All of this discussion, all of this theology, all of these things that cause confusion and doubt and people to debate, all of it was intended to be encouragement. Here's the point. Hold on to the truth of God and stand firm. If you're saved, God has chosen you. He's not going to lose you. He's not going to leave you out there flapping in the wind. He's not going to forget about you. He chose you before he made the Wasatch Front. And you were saved the moment he picked you. You have no reason if you are in Christ, to worry. Now, I just want to close with this. Look down at your Bible. I'm not sure if I gave this to them. I added this at the last minute, so you might just have to look at your Bible. Look at chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. This is Paul's prayer in light of what he just shared for the church. For the Lord, I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong verse. That would have been a great thing to read, but we're going to shift over to the next page. Verse 16. May our Lord, Jesus Christ himself, and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal encouragement and good hope by grace, encourage your heart and strengthen you in every good work and word. I'd like to pray for us when we pray. Lord, I'm asking that by your grace, you would give us eternal encouragement. Lord, that you would encourage our hearts, Lord, and you would strengthen us. Lord, I know there are some in here that are worried. They are struggling. Lord, strengthen them and encourage them. Lord, I know there are some that struggle with the idea that you would choose. But Lord, what a great thing to rest in, that it's not on us. It's not on our mental capacities or our strength or our reasoning abilities. It's on you and you, Lord, are all powerful. So we praise you, God, that you would choose and that you would save. And we proclaim your gospel, Lord. We proclaim this hope. But Lord, we need to preach it to ourselves. So I'm asking God that you would help us to even preach it to ourselves. That we are chosen and saved, that you are doing a work and we need not worry at all. Lord, we pray that we would be faithful to take this message to your people whom you are working on and in whom you are stirring. God, I, I know many people in here are thinking about Joe. Or if they're not thinking about Joe, they're thinking about Joe standing before you or Joe in heaven. And Lord, we know it's because 
Joe loved you. God, I pray that any of us in here, when we stand before you, will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Because we've believed. We've seen the gospel as having the power of salvation and not foolishness. And we have followed you faithfully. And Lord, we proclaim, if that is the case indeed, you get all the glory. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. We'd love to have you as our guest. For more information, visit redeeminglifeutah.org.